We've been studying the end times now for how many weeks? Several. Several. And the interesting thing about this study in the end times is that we've been talking about starting at the end times uh, in, in history, biblically speaking. The end times uh, started when? When, when he left for heaven. That's right. When, when, when the Lord ascended into heaven... Uh, uh, biblically speaking, that was the beginning of the end times. And so we've been in the end times by our way of thinking for a long time, haven't we? Mm -hmm. yep. It's a long time in terms of the way we view time, but I wonder if it's a long time in the way that God views time. Probably not so much. So if we're Bible students, we know that the Bible tells us that to God a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years a day. So it's very difficult for us to actually apply that kind of thinking because we're so finite, you know, we don't understand time. And yet, so a couple thousand years have gone by and we're in the end times and we've learned that the rapture of the church is... Imminent. It could happen at any time. There is absolutely nothing that is precluding the rapture of the church taking place except God's decision on the timing. That's it. And that's a sobering thought as we've been studying the end times because we're seeing that there are things that are going to be taking place. And last week, as a matter of fact, I handed out a little bit of a, a, a it was a, a two-sided uh, handout last week. And we did another two-sided handout because I figured out how to do that. And, um, and so on the, on the back of your handout for the scriptures that we're going to be looking at tonight, you, you'll see just a very brief and very basic, which frankly, that's what this, that's what really we've been studying eschatology in a very brief and very basic way because the study of end times could be, uh, very exhaustive. We, we could be here every Wednesday until the rapture, uh, whatever that might be, uh, and, and not get through all of the uh, um, uh, issues that are associated with, with an end times study. But this, this is just for your reference on the back in terms of uh, taking a look. This isn't, uh, I plagiarized this uh, so that you know. Um, and just go ahead and admit that right up front. Uh, this this uh, uh, graph that talks about um, uh, where we are now and we are in the end times and we're, we're waiting for this battle that is going to take place and uh, we don't need to rehash all of that tonight but we know that there will be a battle that's going to take place, the Antichrist will be revealed, the seven year tribulation period uh, will be uh, initiated uh, and right before that initiation uh, the church is going to be raptured and we won't be there we won't be there and so during the tribulation, a lot of things are going to happen and it's going to be a very condensed period of time. Seven years goes by very quickly. And so uh, when we see in Scripture that uh, to the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day, the Scriptures tell us that this period called the tribulation is finite. It will be seven years. It will be a literal seven years. And we've been looking at what is going to be taking place and it is going to be about Jesus. 
the tribulation is about Jesus, but there's a purpose, and we've learned, we've learned what the purpose is. There's a purpose for Israel. There's a purpose for believers. There's a purpose for non-believers. There's, a, there's even a purpose for God for this tribulation period to take place. And he tells us about that in Scripture, and we have looked at that in weeks past. You'll notice that on this timeline, I accelerated it and gave you the whole thing. So for those of you that are brand new to this, which I know none of you are, uh, you're going to see that, that the tribulation period actually is going to end after this, after this seven-year period. And then uh, there will be another uh, glorious event that comes after this judgment and after the horrific events that we're taking a look at. And we're going to accelerate tonight as we look at the trumpet judgments of God. And what the Antichrist is up to during this period, the second half of the tribulation. We're going to see that, that, uh, that Christ returns. Now, we, we have to be reminded that there is a difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, people in the church get that confused. So the question is, were any of you confused before we started this study of eschatology relative to the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church. Did anybody think that those two were synonymous? They were the same event? A lot of people do, actually. Okay, that's good. Thank you for being honest. So, so yes, they are two separate events. The church is raptured, and then there is a tribulation, and then Jesus returns, and we're going to see that. Then there's a millennial reign, and, and there's, uh, it, it gets very interesting when there is a millennial reign, meaning millennial meaning a thousand, and we see that, that Christ reigns on the earth for a thousand years. We're going to see that, 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 uh, that the evil one, that Satan is let loose because he is thrown into the abyss for that period of time. We're going to look at abyss tonight, uh, and we're going to see that he is, he is let loose, and um, uh, don't ask me why. It's God's plan, and the scripture is very clear. That there is one final episode uh, with with him, and that we know that that Jesus wins, right? We know that. It's kind of like watching the ball game that's on right now that I'm taking. <laughs> I don't want to know who wins when I get home. I'm going to watch it, but it will already have been won by somebody, and and so we already know the end game. It's really interesting, isn't it? We know the end game, and yet we're studying eschatology because it's, t- it's telling us about what the details are between now and the end. When we win and we are with Christ and we're reigning with him for a thousand years during this millennial reign, and, and uh, then there is ultimately a, an eternity. So eternity actually kicks in after the millennial reign uh, of Christ on the earth, and, 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 and that's what... That's where our hope is. Our hope is not that we hope that that's going to happen. We know that's going to happen. So we have to understand what that word hope means. But our hope is in ultimately we shed the evil and, uh, and the sin that is in this world and we are with Christ for an eternity uh, in, uh, in our, our in bodies that don't resemble anything, uh, thank God, like they like they are right now, uh, and and that is for an eternity, glorified bodies for an eternity. So we look at that timeline, and we're going to go through all of that, and we're, we're going to be done by December 17th, by the way, just so you know that. Um, and we're even going to take one week off in in, uh, in November, so a little bit of housekeeping here. Um, and we're going to look at all of these events, and I'm hoping that when we're all done, it's going to be pretty clear. 
it's going to be clear what happens, the sequence in which it happens, and so that we would have the opportunity to share that with folks. In reviewing the timeline, it's on the back of your handout. And we looked last week at something new, which was the wedding that is going to take place in heaven, right? Remember that? So we have the wedding and the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that's an important event because we are the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And who is the church? Okay, you're the church. And so that there is going to be a wedding and we are being prepared for that wedding because we are already betrothed, as we saw in Scripture last week. So Revelation 19 talks about this betrothal period. We are in the betrothal period and the dowry has been paid. So Christ paid. He paid it off. And so that was the that's pretty amazing. Last week I shared the story of my African friends that had the betrothal period and, and depending on the nature of of the of the bride, if she was educated, the betrothal period um, it isn't specific in Africa, but um, but the dowry is, and the, the more there's more value t- uh, to a woman that is more educated, and so um, it's good for for uh, fathers to get their their uh, daughters educated uh, uh, because it, it's uh, there's a payday, <laughs> and so multiple cows, multiple sheep, multiple goats. Um, uh, that would be paid as a dowry uh, for for a daughter that is uh, that is uh, educated as opposed to uneducated, as an example. But we we've, we've already been paid for, and Jesus paid the price. And so some will be ready, and some won't for this wedding that is going to take place. And we see that in Matthew 25 in the parable of the ten virgins. Where five of the five of these virgins, they were the, the the analogy here is that they're they're going to a wedding, and five of these uh, gals were prepared, and they had lamp oil, and their wicks were trimmed, and they were ready because they knew that the bride was going to be coming for them. They just didn't know when, and the other five were ah laissez faire. They were casual about it. They didn't have any extra oil. They didn't keep their wicks on their on their um, lamps trimmed. They were not prepared. And so when the bride came, they were scrambling like crazy. Oh, can you can you lend me some? Can I buy some oil? Can I can you you know I don't have scissors to trim my to to, to trim the wick on my I, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. That's a scary verse in scripture that Jesus. This is the one that this is the most troubling verse in all of Scripture for me personally. Uh, when Jesus says, "Hey, I, I wait for me. I didn't know you. I didn't know you." Now that's very sobering when you stop to think about: Are we prepared or aren't we prepared? The preparedness, of course, is putting our faith in Christ. But then, like the message that came out of this pulpit last Sunday is: What do we do with that? <laughs> you know, what do we do with it? Do we blow that off Monday through Saturday? But then we come back and we pretend to be prepared on Sunday? A lot of people do. And that was the message there. They were not prepared, half of them. And I don't know what happened, but the, but the, the principle is that Jesus could have said, Who are you? Who are you? And we don't want that to happen. Take place. It's going to take place in the Father's house, and where is that? In heaven. 
So the bride of Christ is going to be in heaven after the rapture. There will be a marriage ceremony and then there will be a marriage feast in heaven. And these go on for days. The marriage ceremonies of, of in antiquity went on for days and days and days. And so uh, we saw that Jesus had to turn his first miracle. He had to turn water into wine because they ran out. They had barrels of the stuff. And yet they ran out because the feast went on for days. And that's what's going to happen. We then looked last week um, at, the, at, the, at this mysterious group of people, the 144,000 witnesses. And there's some controversy about who these, who these men really are. A little bit of controversy about who these men really are. But we looked and we looked at Revelation 7 and it spoke about these 144,000 that they were 12,000 each from the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Revelation 7 it says that no harm is to come to the land, sea, or the trees until they receive the seal of God on their forehead. So these 144,000 are literal people from the 12 tribes of Israel. And why are they literal Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel? Why? They're God's people. And why else? That's a good reason. Because the church isn't there. The church is gone. The church has been raptured. Who's left? There's no believers that are left at the rapture. That's why it's called left. They're left. Okay? So... Hang on a second. The Lord's calling Doris. <laughs> Is he going to leave a message? Or? <laughs> Maybe it's just a text. I, I, I think he texts. I'm not positive of that. <laughs> So we see these 144,000 are literal, and you know that we have to interpret the Bible literally where we can. And we're going to see that that gets a little bit challenging this evening as we go through the trumpet judgments. It makes it a little bit more challenging, and it gets a little farther into uh, Revelation we go, the more challenging it gets. But nonetheless, the 144,000 are 12,000 each from the 12 tribes of Israel. And then during the tribulation period, these 144,000 are used of God. They're protected. They're sealed, we saw uh, throughout Revelation. And even Matthew 24, 14 said that, that um, this, uh, this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. But wait a minute. Aren't we in the end times? And didn't that start when Jesus ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father? Didn't he say this, that's the end times? And hasn't that been to our way of thinking about a thousand years? And the answer to those questions is yes. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, that the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached to the whole world. To the whole world. And then the end will come. Well, if you study that and you look at it in context, Jesus is talking in Matthew 24. Uh, he's talking about the end times. And I mean the end, end times. In the great tribulation where the church is going to be gone. He is cluing in his boys, if you will, that are with him, that there is going to be an event. And the event is going to necessarily include these 144,000. And we don't know how God seals them exactly, but we do know that there is a seal. That means protection. And we know that everybody is going to know who they are. 
because they're going to have a mark and they're going to have the mark of God and scripture says on their forehead. I think you can take that literally. People are going to know who the 144,000 are that are going to be going out throughout the entire world and they are going to be prophesying and they are going to be evangelizing and even though the scripture doesn't call them evangelists, if you take a look at all of, all of Scripture, we see that they are redeemed and that they are bond servants. And we know that a bond servant is a voluntary slave in some cases. And so these 144,000 Jews that God chooses, and why wouldn't he choose them? He chose the Jewish people generally to be his people right from the beginning, didn't he? And so these 144,000 are going to be protected from the coming judgments and they're going to be protected. They're going to be a protected class. They're going to be protected from the judgments and they are going to be protected from all the things that are taking place during the tribulation period. <clears throat> Literally, John sees a revelation and he is given this revelation about the 144,000 in Revelation 7, 1 through 8. And then immediately after that in verse 9. Praise God for the people that put verses and chapters and everything in the Bible. I mean, can you imagine doing this without that? But the next verse in context and sequentially says the next thing that John saw was this multitude of people. And where were the multitude of people? <coughs> Standing before the throne. And where is the throne? In heaven. In, in heaven. And so John says these 144,000 people were selected. They were bond servants. They are sealed. And they are going to be used of God. And then right after that, he says that there was this great multitude couldn't be counted standing before the Lamb of God. In the heavenly realms. And the only way to get there at this period of time is how? Yeah, they were martyred. Our first clue in Scripture about what's going to happen in terms of people coming to Christ after the church has been removed and after these horrific events begin to take place is that, yes, multitudes. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Multitudes. Scripture also uses in concert with that term multitude too many to count. That's mind-boggling to me because I would think that just one, two, three, I don't know how long it would take you to count to, I don't know, how long would it take you to count to a billion? It'd take a long time. But it says that there was a multitude standing before the, before the Lamb of God and they were in heaven. And so that's quite literal. These 144,000 went out and evangelized and people were coming to Christ. And we're going to see about what happens with the Holy Spirit during this time because the church age is over. The church is in heaven. The church has been raptured. The 144,000 go out and a multitude of people come to Christ and they are, they are martyred. Because if you come to Christ in the tribulation, there's a pretty good bet that you're going to be killed. That's what the Bible says. See, we don't get that. Some places on earth they get that today, but we don't. Of course. I was just going to say we're beginning to see it with the Muslims. Mm -hmm. You know, killing people. You know. <coughs> That's exactly right. 
And so there is a faction of Islam that says that if you're an infidel, you should be killed. And what is the definition of an infidel if you are, if you are an Islamist? Everybody that isn't. It's that simple. So uh, from their point of view, you either agree with them or you, should be, or you should be killed. The issue right now is that that can't happen very quickly like it is going to happen during the tribulation period. Because chaos, remember, is going to reign during this time. So God chooses these 144,000 and they're Jews and they're believers. But what he doesn't tell us is how they come to faith in Christ. We don't know that. We just know that there's 144,000. And we also know that there's probably going to be, we don't, we have to make a, a, a big assumption right now. Well, let's assume that the rapture takes place real soon. Like tonight. And we already know how many billions of people there are on the planet. And we have a reasonably good idea. We could guesstimate how many are, are going to be left behind. And we know that uh, at that particular point, uh, none of them that are left behind are going to be believers. But right away, there are these 144,000 that are chosen by God to go out and evangelize. Somehow these 144,000, 12 each from the 12 tribes, 12,000 each from the 12 tribes of Israel, um, uh, become believers. They are believers. Their faith is in Christ and they are protected. Now, to be fair, in terms of interpretive differences here, some people would interpret these 144,000 not to be literal. I don't take that position, but some people would take it to be spiritual and some people would take it to um, to represent that these 144,000 are spiritual Israel. OK, or the church that is left. But there is no church. It takes it takes a it's a big stretch to get there biblically. But we have to be fair and we have to be respectful of those brothers and sisters in Christ that would take the position that these 144,000 people are not literal. And there are, there's even a group that would believe that the 144,000 are literal, but they're not evangelists. They're not on the earth. They're actually in heaven and they worship and they serve God for the entire tribulation period. But there are, there are numerous biblical problems with those positions. And although the literal 144,000 that evangelized the world isn't perfect biblically, uh, it's the most reasonable explanation when you tie all of Scripture together. And you have to interpret Scripture based on Scripture, because what I think is not important. It's what the Bible says that's important. We looked also at the two witnesses very briefly last week. Who were the two witnesses? We don't know. What do they do? They prophesy. What do they prophesy? Who Jesus was and what's going to happen. And are they popular? No. <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly a Billy Graham crusade. So these two witnesses go out and in fact, uh, as a matter of fact, in Revelation 11, 5 and 6, you don't have to turn there because we're going to turn to a bunch of scripture later. 
uh, says this. If, if anyone tries to harm them, that's the two witnesses, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. God gives these two witnesses incredible supernatural power so that they can go out and witness. These two are also protected by God for a time. Because we also saw in Revelation 11 that these two are then ultimately killed okay, by Satan or the Antichrist. They are murdered, okay? And God allows this murder to take place. They lay in state, okay? I can just imagine the Antichrist gloating over the fact. See, I got them. These two witnesses of God that have power that is beyond anything that we can imagine. We don't believe it. Fire coming out of their mouth. Shutting up the heavens for three and a half years. At will, they can... They can call a plague on the entire planet or just a region at will. They have the power to do that. We don't, we don't understand that. And yet that's the power that God gave them. And the Antichrist is going to kill them and say, aha, done. They're dead. Okay. The problem is the Bible also says three and a half days later, God raises them from the dead. And then their enemies see them being raised on a cloud. There's a lot of symbolism in this cloud thing that we'll get into later but but nonetheless their enemies see them and that's got to be a, that's got to be for them that's got to be a pretty scary moment many people are going to flash back to what other event that took place after three days it says Jesus written all over it so we don't know who they are we know what their assignment is and we know that they're protected for God by God for a time. And they do God's work until he is finished with them here. So the 144,000 are still here. The two witnesses are not. And yet the judgments continue. And so the trumpet judgments are of God. There are three judgments of God. Remember, anybody remember the first judgments that we looked at two weeks ago? The sealed judgments. And now we're going to look at the trumpet judgments. And then remember the last judgment? The bold judgments. And it's interesting because the seal and the trumpet judgments are, are horrific judgments. And they are judgments on sin and evil in the world. And then we see that the bold judgments actually, there's a shift because this judgment of God actually converts. And it is not against sin and evil in the world. It is directed at Satan and the Antichrist. And we'll look at the bold judgments because the first two judgments, if you think we're harsh, begin to get really tough. And so uh, to understand these judgments, it's, it's uh, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to want to personalize it. I wonder what it would be like. I have to speculate and, and it's hypothetical, of course, but I wonder what it would be like to have to, to be in these judgments. Because the sealed judgments um, that are in Revelation 6, very quickly we saw that the first one is that the Antichrist comes to conquer. Okay, he comes to conquer and he comes to rule the world. And the second one is all peace is taken away from the world. Imagine the world with no peace. We think we see that now. That's not what this is saying. It means all peace. It means that those of you and I are sitting against a, a, a cross from one another during this period of time, we will hate each other. And I will be thinking about annihilating you and you will be thinking about annihilating me because it will be 
survival of the fittest, and it is going to be horrific. And there will be brother against brother, and sister against brother, and mother against daughter, and it is going to be a horrific time of, of people actually wanting to kill one another because it's survival. That's what the word means. The third seal judgment is the rationing of food, and the scriptures tell us in Revelation 6... Uh, five and six that there's not only going to be rationing because of these events that are taking place but the cost of food is going to go up tenfold so if you spent 500 bucks a month at the store for you and your family to eat it's going to be now 5,000 I mean, think about that that's a simple little thing who can afford $5,000 at the store so think about that in terms of what these people are going to be experiencing and that's just a little thing in terms of the judgments. The fourth seal is the compound effect and we of all of the first three seal judgments, and we see that twenty five percent of the people on the earth are killed. Okay? That's about one point five billion people. So uh, I don't know how many Christians there are. Let's just say that there's one point five billion. Okay? And then let's just say, so those people are gone. And the next thing that happens is these judgments come up upon the earth. And the fourth seal judgment is 25% of the earth is annihilated. Those people are killed. That's another 1.5 people, uh, 1.5 billion people. So now 3 billion people in a fairly short period of time are gone. I mean, that's an incredible thought. Just an incredible thought. And the fifth seal judgment talks about the martyred saints from the past and they say, I love this, because they say, God when are you going to avenge our death? They killed us, they cut our heads off they're in the presence of the Lord and they say, what are you going to do, God? You see, they're running out of patience they still aren't glorified they still aren't patient and they're asking God, when, when when we're tired of waiting, God. And he says, in a paraphrased kind of way, hang on, chill out. <laughs> you know, we're not done yet. There's a lot of saints that are going to be martyred, he tells them. And when the last one is martyred, then it will be time. See, God doesn't want anybody to be left. We think about it as judgment, but it's really love. That's what it is. See, there's this love affair that God has with his, with his creation. That's us. And so, even in this horrific period of time, he's patient enough. To, he's waiting. Are you kidding me? He's been waiting 2,000 years for people just to say, okay. And he's going to wait in the tribulation. And he's going to show himself Oh, there's going to be judgment, all right. And there will be God's wrath. But there will also be love and there will be opportunity. And multitudes will come to him. That's the encouraging thing. Multitudes of people are going to come to Christ during this period. It's going to cost them their life. But they're going to get it. And yet a lot won't. A lot won't. The sixth seal judgment talks about an earthquake that's epic. It even affects the moon. Somebody was telling me, I forget who it was, about the John Hagee book, Red Blood, Blood, I don't know, what is it? Red Blood, Rising, Moon, Rising, whatever it is. And he talks about these, these blood moons. We had one just recently. And he talks about, uh, uh, oh, go on the internet, because everything you read there is true. <laughs> Isn't it? 
I, it's got to be because I pulled this up today and I thought this was good. It says the final seven years are here. We have entered the final seven years and Obama is the Antichrist. <laughs> I read it on the internet. <laughs> I mean, tell you, there, there are just so many crackpots out there. And so uh, every time you hear something, whether, uh, whether it, I don't care if it comes from a pulpit or where it comes from, <laughs> the internet especially, which you can believe almost none of. But wherever it comes from, you have to be discerning. And the only way to be discerning is to, is to pick this up. Okay? So discernment comes here. And so to the extent that it ties into what God's Word already says, believe it. Trust me. Obama is not the Antichrist, and we are not in the seven-year tribulation period. Okay? <laughs> How do I know? Because when I try to fit this in, it, just, it doesn't. You know, it's just, it won't go. It just won't go. The seventh judgment, then, it well, in speaking of the red blood, red moon, moon, red blood, four blood, red moons. Yeah, so that's a that's a really uh, that's a that's a celestial event that, that is going to take place. And there are there are uh, there are those uh, that are trying to establish. I, I call them timeline people. Uh, and date setters, there are those that are attempting to try to establish a date for when this is going to take place. And, and the reason that you can't do that, no matter, I, and, I, and I would respect the, the hankies of the world and others, but the reason that you can't do that is why? Because Jesus said only the Father knows. That's right. And we shouldn't be worried about that. And so those, if the first time you run across a date setter, just turn the channel or, yeah. or put the book down. Because it, I'm telling you, it won't line up with this. Okay? Because Barack Obama is not the Antichrist. I'm confident of that. We are not in the seven-year tribulation period. I am absolutely confident of that because this says so. This says so. So you don't want me to tell Barrett that the end times are over on 1217? No. <laughs> no, but there are those that would suggest... That by virtue of when these when these celestial events are going to take place, because they fall on some of the Jewish holidays, you know, and so they have worked that all the way around and got people worked up into a lather to, to think through whether or not the world is going to end on a specific point. And even the world ending isn't necessarily biblical. So I mean, we have to understand what God's plan is, which is I suppose why we're here. But nonetheless, uh, you just be discerning. Okay, and discernment starts, first of all, with God's word because it's truth. It's the only thing that we can, it's the only thing that we, that we have. Okay, because the internet is entertainment. It's useful in some areas, but mostly it's entertainment. And so these judgments that take place end up, the seventh seal judgment ends up with the unleashing of the trumpet judgments of God. Now, Scripture leaves absolutely no doubt that the second half of the tribulation is going to be a horrific time of judgment for Israel. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Because these trumpet judgments that come next get more horrific than those first judgments. And the first seven seal judgments were tough enough. Amen? So in your outline... We're not going to start with the first scriptures up at the top. We're going to start with the trumpet judgments in Revelation 8. We want to turn to Revelation 8. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
A couple of things to note with these judgments of God that are coming, that the sealed judgments, anybody remember how they were initiated? Or who? Only Jesus was worthy to open the scroll and those judgments, those sealed judgments, he was the only one. That's really interesting because those sealed judgments now, if we're zooming ahead in time and assuming that they've already taken place, that's done. The next judgment of God is the trumpet judgments and we're going to see that these uh, judgments are now going to signal this next judgment period of evil and sin on the earth and they are ushered in by angels. Interesting. They are ushered in by angels. What's the significant uh, the significance of trumpets in scripture? Like a herald. And what is a herald? A messenger. Okay. That's good. Announcements. Okay. The trumpets announced things. Okay. Like what things? Anybody? They told the Israelites when to move in the desert. The, the trumpet. They blow the trumpet for when the Israelites are supposed to move in the desert. Exactly. Anything else? In battles. Yeah. Yeah, so trumpets, this is a very common thing, not in our culture. Uh, we have bells. I, I heard the bell ring at 7 o'clock. They have had bells ring all the time. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, we're going to pray for you to see that. And so we have these trumpet judgments, and the interesting thing is, is that the reader back in the day uh, would have understood clearly. Okay, we have to kind of reel in this 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 terminology a little bit and <coughs> trumpets were significant so trumpets sounded and they announced things they, they heralds used trumpets trumpets were used to signal things trumpets were used to intimidate um, uh, enemies okay because when a trumpet would would sound uh, if you were on defense and they were shooting you know arrows and uh, what do they call those things uh, yeah catapults you know they were doing that um, when that kind of stuff was going on, uh, they would sound a trumpet. The trumpet sound would be the call to the army to attack. And if you were on defense, if you didn't have any more army, just the sound of the trumpet would intimidate the enemy. They used the trumpet to, to, um, to, to ring in uh, the, the death of a, of a significant person in the community. So if somebody of importance died, they would sound a trumpet. And then ultimately, what is the trumpet going to be used for? At Christ's return. Okay. Everybody is going to hear. Okay. You won't need television. Okay. There will be no question when Christ comes. So the trumpet is significant. And Revelation 8, 7 talks about this first trumpet judgment. Would somebody read Revelation 8, 7, please? The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Doesn't sound so bad, does it? Was <laughs> 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 Yeah. Think about it. You think about blood being on the ground and stinking and the flies that are 
disgusting. Interesting. There are seven angels that are going to sound the trumpet for each one of these uh, for each one of these judgments that is going to come uh, on the earth. And there's going to be a lot of people. Remember, there are still several billion people on the earth when this is taking place. We're about the midpoint of the tribulation. And although it's been pretty horrific, it hasn't been as horrific as it is about to get. And the first trumpet judgment is, is sounded by the angel. And a third of the earth is burned up. Now, I don't know about you. I like to think about these things. So I'm thinking about all the fires we had this year just in California. Now, I'm a pilot. When you go to fly, they have what they call temporary flight restrictions around areas that are on fire so they can get the airplanes in there and you, you can't fly through that area. And several times in summers I'm flying, I'm doing this to, to get up to Northern California or Oregon. You know, I got to go around all of this stuff. And it just seemed like it was a really, it was a real pain in the neck, to be honest with you. Now, all of a sudden, I'm imagining the world, a third of which is on fire. It says the trees, a third of which burned up. And how much of the green grass burned up during this judgment? Oh. So there's nothing for the cattle to eat. There, think about the implications of each one of these judgments. The trees are burned up. Think, I'm thinking about the smoke. I'm thinking about being able to breathe. Being able to, a third of the planet is on fire. And the grass is all burned up. There is no more green grass. Cattle, sheep, wildlife. Don't forget the planet's still here, guys. Okay, this isn't science fiction. This is the real deal. And real people are going to be there while these things are happening. Revelation, it's going to be staggering. That one, that one judgment is going to be staggering in terms of how people have to deal with it. And it's just the first. And it's just the first. The second trumpet judgment, Revelation 8, verses 8 and 9. Somebody. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. All right, it's really interesting because. Um, go ahead, Susan. I was just going to say it again. Think of the smell. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, now let's take a look at this here because it says that something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And the result, you see the result of it? The result was that a third of the sea became blood. All right? And then it says a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were, were destroyed. Well, clearly, it says something like a great burning mountain mountain raining down from heaven a mountain a meteorite asteroid I don't know we're not told do we take this literally or is there is it symbolic in this particular case John says that the second angel sounded and something like 
That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, John is sitting there in Patmos, and he's getting this. This is being revealed to him, and he's writing. I can just see him feverishly writing this stuff down. You know, he's got his iPad, he's typing, and he's doing all this stuff. But it says something. It was revealed to him. This was a visual thing, and it was revealed that something like a great mountain burning with fire went into the sea. Certainly could be. Now, we can't say definitively what it is, nor should we say definitively what it is, but what we're told is is that there is going to be a catastrophic event in the oceans of the planet where a third of it is going to turn to blood. And that's an interesting thing, too, isn't it? Because one of the other places that we look at in Scripture to find out about water and blood is in Exodus. What happened? What what? You know, I, I live in the state of denial a lot of times, but we're talking about the Nile, the Nile River, right? Okay, and what happened to the Nile? It turned to blood. And what was the result of the Nile turning to blood at that time? All the fish died. And what was the center of commerce and, and food production? I mean, there's a direct parallel that's going here. Yeah, there were no more fish tacos on the Nile. And let me tell you, this is a judgment that hits the oceans of the world. You see, all of Exodus, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, it was all very regionalized. And now we're looking at the judgments of God. And we're taking a look at the earth and what's happening. And it's... It is the whole world. This is not a regional thing. We are so isolated as we sit here in Ohio, California in 2014. We don't, we, don't we, have, we have to remember the magnitude of what's going on here. People, maybe some people we know are going to experience this. The rapture could happen tonight. I don't know when it's going to happen. But there are people perhaps that we know that might experience this cataclysmic event where a third of the ocean turns to blood which means that all the fishes in that part of the ocean where it has turned to blood will be dead. There will be no more fish. There is going to be a third of those creatures then in that where whatever part of the world that is the, the ocean feeds a lot of people. We just had a big fire. There is no more green grass and now a third of the of, of what comes from the ocean will not be able to feed people. Um, you know, this is hitting people where they live. And then a third of the ships were destroyed. Well, whatever hits the ocean probably creates some pretty big waves, would be my guess. I don't know. We're not told. It's okay to use our imagination a little bit. What's not okay to do is to definitively say an asteroid is going to hit off the coast of Florida. We can't say that. We don't know what it is. God didn't reveal that to John, and he's certainly not revealing it to us. But it's cataclysmic. A third, a third, and a third, if you will. This is cataclysmic across the world. So this is where imagery starts to take place because we are not sure exactly what is going to take place we just know what the result is. Okay? And, and Revelation has a lot of images for us to deal with, doesn't it? And so now we're slowly moving into the area where we have to be very careful because oftentimes when I say that we have to interpret Scripture literally where we can, we must. But where we can't, we can't. We have to keep going to the third trumpet judgment, Revelation 8. 10 and 11. 
third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky, on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Hmm. Now we have fresh water. There is a judgment on fresh water. A great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. So not only is it going to be difficult to find food during this period of time, imagine the chaos, but all of a sudden there will be little fresh water. Perhaps in some places, none. There will be no fresh water water. The name of the star is Wormwood. I find that interesting. If, you, if Anybody hear that term before? Anybody know what Wormwood is, Doris? It's Chernobyl. Pardon me? It's Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Ah, interesting. Well, do you know what the term Wormwood biblically is? It's a bitter herb. That's all it is. It's a bitter herb. And so whenever this bitter herb was used, it's, it, it makes whatever you put it on unusable. It's interesting because God uses something that the culture at that time would have known instinctively. Oh, that's bad. But it's not poisonous. It's not, it's yeah. not poisonous, but, but they call it wormwood, and it's the analogy that is being. But it says here it will kill them. That's right. Well, Even though it's normally not poisonous. I see a footnote in Amos that references it says that it is, it's a poisonous extract. Yes. It can be, and if you go back to Jeremiah and study that, Jeremiah 9.15, if you want to make a note, that's the first place that you can go to begin to study what wormwood is and what it does. The idea is, is that this is going to be a catastrophic event where wormwood is used, and it is the name of this star. Okay? God calls it wormwood to pollute the fresh waters so that a third of the fresh waters are made bitter and are you are unable to use them. That's what we know is the result. So first we have the sea and then we have the fresh water. Prior to that, in these judgments, we've had food production that has been just almost devastated from these cataclysmic events. So is this star that comes from heaven, what's it say? And a great star fell from heaven. Well, it's like this fell from the sky. From the sky. From the sky. Okay, depending on which, I have a new King James. Okay. And so uh, it came from up there. That's close enough. All right. And so is, is that literal or symbolic, that star? Sounds literal. Could be. We're talking about asteroids. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's an asteroid. Now here's where we have to be careful because we're going to zoom forward uh, in one of the other trumpet judgments and we have to be careful because in Revelation 9.1 it says that a, that a star uh, is going to also fall from heaven and to him was given the key. And so we see that, that, that it is very symbolic, that it is not a literal star, nor it is an asteroid, because I'm sure God is not going to give the key to the abyss to an asteroid. 
And so if we study a little bit further in the, in the judgment to come, we're going to see that a star is actually symbolic for an angel that has been given this task to fulfill the judgment of God. So we just have to be careful when we're reading this in terms of how far we go, either literally or symbolically. And of course, men have been dealing with this now, and women. Um, commentators are all over the place on, on eschatology because it's challenging and we want it to say what we want it to say, but we have to be careful that we just let it say what it says. That's really important. We have to let it say what it says. Okay? Because what do we know about Revelation? The last chapter, the third to the last verse. Yeah, Doris, don't, I'm, you know, please, somebody call me on it if, if you think that I'm adding something here. Okay? Because the last thing that I want to do, or I would hope the last thing that anybody would want to do, would be to add or take anything away from God's Word. We're to divide it. We're not to add to it. Divide it rightly, it says. The fourth trumpet judgment in Revelation 8, 12 and 13 says... The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Amazing. What happens here is that a third of the sun after this fourth trumpet is sounded, what happens to it? The first thing that came to my mind when I looked at this again in some more depth than I ever have before is that if you take a look at what uh, people that are a lot smarter about these things than I'll ever be say about what it takes to, to, to actually propagate plants and grow them is that it takes a certain amount of sunshine. Okay, I mean, it's like God made this perfectly. Why is the San Joaquin Valley in, in California the most, the, 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 the most productive agriculture environment in practically the whole world? Because not only the soil conditions are right, but the sun conditions are just perfect okay, to produce, the, the produce crops. And now all of a sudden we're told that when this trumpet judgment sounds that there is going to be a third of the light will be taken away. I gotta bet it's gonna get cold too. Global warming is gonna go to global cooling in a hurry. <laughs> All right, this one will be God caused, okay? Because a third of the sun is going to be blackened out. Now I don't know if it's just gonna be dimmer by a third, or if a third of the day is just gonna be dark. Because maybe we're not told. We're just told that there is going to be a third of the moon, a third of the stars, and, and a third of the sun are going to be struck, and that, and that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. 
So it kind of tells us that it's like a third of what would normally be sunshine is no longer going to be sunshine. That's huge. Because agriculture is suffering. There's a seven year period going on here. This is the last three and a half years. It's going to be tough to eat the last three and a half years of tribulation. There's not going to be enough food. Look at what happens next. By the way, when was the last time you can remember that the sun was darkened? Well, besides the eclipse, I mean, I'm talking biblically. I'm talking biblically. Jesus, yeah, Jesus crucified, and in broad daylight. You know, you would have thought that everybody on the planet that was associated with that story and they knew what was going on, at least in that region, and the the, the thief says, "Oh, you really are the Son of God." And Jesus says, "Oh, today you're going to be with me in paradise." And then he dies. And he says, you know what? It's finished. And then it goes dark. For three hours, it goes dark. The fact that people weren't on their faces at that time is remarkable, isn't it? From our perspective. Our perspective comes from the power of the Holy Spirit that is in us. Those people didn't have that. They weren't interested. They were self-consumed. All the people in the tribulation are going to be there because they have the same problem. They're self-consumed. They didn't want, nor did they have time for Jesus. We don't have a lot of time to tell people this could happen anytime. It kind of accelerates for me thinking how I should be conducting myself with my friends and family. Can't beat them over the head. That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Well, I can love them more. <laughs> the sun went dark for three hours when Jesus died. Verse thirteen says that I looked and I heard an angel. And some in the, who has a King James? You said. Are you reading now the King James or New King James? NIV. That's NIV. Is it say eagle or angel? And I looked. There may have been people in this room that have entertained an angel without knowing it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and yes, and so can God make an eagle talk? John says, I, yeah, I looked and I heard, and he says, I heard an eagle flying uh, through the midst of heaven saying in a loud voice. That's Balaam about Yeah, exactly. Well, it's really interesting because if you take a look, uh, and I'm not going to bore you with this too much, but if you take a look at the Greek, and if you take a look at the word in the Greek for both angel and eagle, it's really interesting how similar they are in terms of the meaning of a messenger. Very interesting. Very interesting. So literal, but then symbolic. Why, why, why does the rest of it say angel? That, that's a, I don't have an answer to that question. I don't know. Now that's a good question. Now that's a good question. I don't know. But what happens next? It gets worse. What's the clue that it's about to get worse after this fourth judgment? 
Oh, the, the eagle is making this announcement. The trumpet, the trumpet signified it, right? And the and the eagle or the angel. And what is the word that he uses to announce it? Whoa! whoa. What in the world does "whoa" mean biblically? Have mercy. That's close. Warning. Warning is good. <laughs> well, here's the definition of woe biblically. Grief. Anguish. And affliction. There are three woes about to come. And the writer here is trying to explain, as God has revealed it to him, that the judgments that have taken place so far are nothing compared to the anguish that is about to be unleashed. Woe, woe, woe. Grief, anguish, and affliction three times the writer says, to the inhabitants of the earth. It would be hard to imagine there's going to be many people left at that point. Well, and what we're told, we don't know how many people are going to be left, but what we're told is, is that the Christians won't be there because the church is gone, and 25% of whoever is left will have been annihilated. We'll know that there's no peace, and people are killing each other during this whole time. Mm -hmm. People are killing each other. It's survival out there. Okay? You've seen the Hollywood depiction of those things and the very futuristic looking things Mad and they're Max. people get yeah, Mad Max, you know, those those are crazy movies, you know, but but I mean, you know, you can use your imagination and you can you can see that that there it, it is going to be it is going to be a dog eat dog situation. Okay? Hard for us to imagine and yet that's what the Bible says. It is going to be survival of the fittest. Food will be will be in short supply. Fresh water will be almost not available. And there is going to be all kinds of cataclysmic events that are going on. And there will be... Remember the, the first uh, seal judgments? They didn't go away. It's not like they say, boop, there's a judgment and it's only for a time. No, this is a continuation. These things are... They are uh, continuing. Okay? They come in a sequence... But they don't stop. We're given no reference biblically to suggest that any of the judgments are stopping. It's their compounding. In fact, so much so that in the seal judgments we see that there is a compound effect, which is why the 25% of the people that are on the earth are killed. Because it's a compound effect of the first judgments that were already put into place. So it's very clear biblically that there is a principle of continuation of these, of these judgments. So it's not a one-off. One is finished and the next one starts. No, the one that is not that is there continues, and then there's another one that's added on to that, and then there's another one that's added on to that. Hard to imagine how difficult that is going to be. But the fifth trumpet judgment, or the first woe, the first woe is in Revelation, and I'm going to read just a part of this. Revelation nine one. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I. And I saw a star fallen from heaven. There's the star. A star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him. That's interesting, isn't it? A star fallen from heaven. And then God says, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Does somebody else's version say the abyss? Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
So the abyss, what is the abyss? The bottomless pit. Uh, and what do we know about the bottomless pit in the abyss? There's no bottom to it. Exactly right. But what, what's the main thing that we know about it biblically? Satan is going to be thrown there. That's enough. That's all we need to know. Satan is going to be thrown there. Uh, for how long? Yeah, and then he's going to be let out for a bit. And then there's this whole lake of fire. We're going to get to that later. But the abyss is not a pleasant place. And so what happens is, is that is that this this angel to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. What for? Verse two. And then he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose. This is a judgment now. This is the first woe. He opened the bottomless pit with this key. Literal. Maybe not. Maybe. Yeah. Something happens when he uses the keys, so possibly. Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know. Hard to imagine that the abyss has a lock with a skeleton key. You know what I mean? All right, just hard to imagine that. Uh, but we're not told. We are not told. Uh, I'm not going to hypothesize here. I just It wouldn't be appropriate, so I'm not going to. All I know is that he opened it, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. We've now got, we've got so much smoke that has come out of this bottomless pit. Think about this now in terms of what the principles are that you could apply to what hell might be like. The bottomless pit is analogous to, to, to this, this place where people are going to go for an eternity, where they're going to be tormented, because that's what they chose. And we're told here that in the abyss, the angel opens the door to the abyss, and the first thing that comes out is smoke. So much of it that what's happening? The sun is darkened. That's not because there's a fire in Ohio. This means over the earth. The sun is darkened because of what comes out of the abyss. Think about what is in the abyss now. Because where there is smoke, there is fire. Okay? Verse 3. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, what was left of it, or any green thing, what was left of it, or any tree, what was left of them, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember the 144,000? <coughs> At this time, there is going to be a trumpet judgment and the keys to the abyss are going to be given to an angel and he's going to open it up and the first thing that's going to happen is a tremendous amount of smoke is going to be unleashed somehow. It is going to be so much smoke that it darkens the sun and then these locusts come out. We'll look at this, we'll look at this symbolically or literally here in just a minute. And, and then they are commanded not to harm the environment. Okay, God's an environmentalist. So they're commanded not to in, not to harm the environment, uh, um, uh, but only those men that don't have the mark of God. You see, because there will be people coming to Christ during this period, and that had yet to be marked, and they're going to take on the mark of God somehow. 
Because you're going to have one of two marks in this, at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And, and we're going to see this later. I'm sorry. It's not going to be the 144,000 they'll put there up in heaven, right? Nope. The 144,000 are used of God on the earth during this period. They're going to evangelize the earth. The people that are in heaven are those martyred saints. And so all the martyrs and you, Danny, you'll be there. Pretty calm. We're sure. The 144,000, here's how we know that they're not going to be harmed. Because the angel was given the keys to the abyss and they were told not to harm anybody that had the mark of God on their forehead. It says so right here. right here, The seals on their forehead. So anyone that would suggest, and that's why it's a stretch, it's hard when somebody says the 144,000 are symbolic of the church or spiritual Israel or, or they are in heaven and they are going to be praising God because it says right here in Scripture, in Revelation, um, this verse, Verse 4, that this, this, the, these locusts that come out, okay, and we're going to see what they look like here in a minute, are not to harm these people, the people that have the mark of God. And we're told earlier, what do the 144,000 people get? The seal of God, the mark of God. They're protected by God. Everybody knows who they are, but nobody can harm them. Satan can't touch them. The Antichrist can't touch them. No harm can come to them. They are evangelizing the world. They are the ones that are starting out and finishing, in this period, the Great Commission. Because I'm telling you that it is not finished until the Great Commission is finished. Because that's what the Bible says. And so they have the mark, and they are not to be touched and anybody else that has come to Christ that hasn't been martyred at this point will also have the mark, and they're not going to be touched. The point is that they're coming out of the abyss, and they are going to torment those that are the followers of the Antichrist. Verse 5. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. The torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death, and they will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. There is going to be... Let's finish it, and then we'll, and then we'll kind of shape this, uh, both uh, figuratively and literally. Verse 7. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold. Ooh, it gets very imagery-oriented here now, doesn't it? These locusts had heads uh, <clears throat> that were... Or on their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. Verse 8. They had hair like women's hair. Hmm. And their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots that many horses, with many horses running into battle. Verse 10, they had tails like scorpions, and, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months. Verse 11, and the last one we'll look at, and they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, the abyss. Whose name in Hebrew is what? And in Greek he has a name what? It's, oh, it's really interesting. We'll look at this in a second. And both the Hebrew and the Greek names for this king of the abyss that was led out by the angel who was given the key by God to do what? To torment all of those people that have made the decision to follow Satan or to follow the Antichrist, which means they are rejecting God, they are rejecting Jesus. During this period, they are going to be subjected to a torment 
that is going to be so bad that they're going to want to die, but they won't be able to. They won't be able to take their own lives. There will be nobody being killed during this period. There is going to be a torment for five months, according to what the Bible says of these creatures. There's a lot of imagery here. So is a locust that has women's hair and a crown and a best breastplate that spits fire going to really come out of the abyss? Is that literal? I'm looking forward to not seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't think so. I think that it's worse. Wouldn't that make them want to um, know God? I mean, oh, you would sure think so, wouldn't you? You would sure think so because God is during this whole period of time. He has let them know. I am God. And this is what's going to happen. He's doing this. It sounds horrific, doesn't it? It's love. This is what's going to happen. All you have to do is say, oh, Lord, I'm so wrong. Forgive me. I repent. That's it. Just like today. There is going to be, this is symbolic language of, of perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps demonic beings. These are going to be, they are going to be creatures of some kind that are unleashed out of the abyss. That are going to attack people and torment them in ways that is so horrific, we're not even told. So God didn't even tell John what the horrific torment is going to be because I believe it's probably because it's too horrific. And they're going to be so tormented that people are going to say, oh, I can hear people right now, Kathy, saying, oh, God, I just want to die. But they won't be able to. Because the Bible says they won't. It says death will flee them. So God is going to make them endure this for five months. That's a definite period of time. Seven years. Three and a half years. Five months. It's getting very definite as we get towards the end, isn't it? Time is being compressed now to the point where God's word is telling us with specificity. Not the end times. The end times is a long period of time. When we're in this period of time, things happen on a definite timetable. Time is set. You can tick it off. And Kathy, wouldn't you believe that if it was like this, that people would be falling all over themselves in terms of wanting to repent and come to Christ? And you know what? They will. Because there is a multitude, Scripture says, that come to Christ. And they pay for it with their life. But during this period, they can't. They're going to have to endure it. And in, interesting that John used the king of the abyss. Who is that? Satan. Ah, Satan. And he has given both the Greek and the Hebrew name for the king of the abyss. Now, maybe I'm just weird. But that's fascinating to me. Because I like words. And when I look at scripture, and I have to study scripture because I don't know Greek and I don't know Hebrew, so I got all these books and I have to look up the words and I got to figure out what it means. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's really kind of fun. And so, but what happens here is, is that in, in scripture, uh, God's word did it for us. And so John here is telling about the king of the abyss, Satan himself, and he gives them both the Greek and the Hebrew name for them. 
Which means destroyer. Destroyer and destruction. Yeah. Or ruin or exterminator. That's the name that is given in Scripture to the king of the abyss in Revelation. In both the Hebrew and the Greek. It's significant both geographically and it's significant culturally because there were both Jews and Greeks. And when the Jew would read this, and, the, and it's in, it, it, he would read it in what? The Hebrew, all right? And everybody else would read it in what? The Greek. And God didn't want you to miss this, okay? Because if you were a Jew or a Greek, there it is. This is the king of the abyss that came out with his minions from yesterday, Scotty. Mm -hmm. With his minions that are going to torment unbelievers for five months and they aren't going to be able to do anything about it. Even die. So we know that they come out of the abyss. We know that the abyss darkens the sun with all of the smoke that comes up. We know that the image of the locust is really um, almost scary because we've seen other plagues, haven't we, with locusts. And what happens, what's the image that you get in your mind when there's a plague of locusts? They, yeah, they eat everything. Total destruction. Huh. Interesting, isn't it? Locusts, when they come, they just eat everything in their path. It's like a tornado went through. Nothing is left. That's the image that's conjured up here. That gives us a clue of what hell must be like. Because where did this come from? The abyss. Doesn't sound pleasant to me. Bill, you're saying that um, during that five month period, anyone that came to Christ <coughs> during that time is still suffered for the five months? What I'm saying is, is that everybody that has the mark. What I'm saying is not important. No, but what, what the Bible says is that only those that do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So anybody that has not come to Christ at the time that this judgment is is this is sounded is going to go through this this torment. Everybody, if the day before the trumpet is blown, if the second before the trumpet is blown and you receive the mark of God by coming to Christ, then you are not going to go through this. That's what scripture says. But this is intended to have you come to Christ. Amen. That's the whole point of all of this activity that is going on. So that it is pre-told. Remember, this is an end time study. This is not a revelation study. The book of Revelation is the book of Revelation. It tells us a whole bunch of things that are going to go on for a very specific period of time. But the end time started 2,000 years ago and it was foretold by the prophets thousands of years before that. Because we just go to we go to Ezra and we can go to Isaiah and we can go to Jeremiah and we, we can go to the prophets of, of old and we can see that all of this was foretold even in the Psalms. Read Psalm 83 tonight before you go to bed. Or something more pleasant if you'd like. But this just shows that God's still in control. God's in control. And he's told everybody, guys, I love you. Don't go here. It's a love story crazy, isn't it? It's not the way we think of a love story. It's a love story. Because God has to cleanse so that the remnant can be saved. And only those that want to 
Wes said tonight, why? When the question was asked, why are you here? Because I want to be. You know what? Those are going to be all the people that are with Christ for an eternity. Because they want to be. You all made that decision already. That's already that's done for you. That's, that's done. This is going to be a much more difficult period of time for people to make that decision. A much more difficult period of time. And this torture that is going to go on is going to be unavoidable. And they're not going to be able to get out of it. And they're not going to be able to stop it. There will be no cure for it. The five months has to go on. And anybody that knows this, all they have to do... You know, there's going to be a lot of these hanging around. With notes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With notes. And, and all you got to do is look in there. And if anybody is going through this and they go, Oh my God. Hey, Marvin. We only got three more months of this, buddy. All right, and then we can accept the Lord, and guess what? We'll get the we'll get the mark of God, and you know what, buddy? Probably going to cost us our life, but you know what? It's worth it. He was right, Martin, this whole time. What were we thinking? It's possible, but not during this judgment. Without the mark, you're going to endure five months of this. Multitudes are going to come to Christ. Kathy, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Are you kidding? There's a bunch of these around. I'll bet you people are going to be reading this thing. There are going to be, you know, Daryl is so funny, uh, Daryl Herman. You know, he's never written. He told me that, that you know, how old is Daryl, 78 or whatever he is? And he said, I think I read, like, whatever I had to read when I was in school. And he hasn't picked up a book since. And about three months ago, he got into reading the the man is reading like five or six books a week right now. He is—he has this voracious appetite for reading. He'll read anything. He comes to Richie's little library in there. We're all bringing him books, and he's just—he—he he just can't get enough. He gets up in the morning and he reads. I have—I got a hunch. I don't know this. This is pure speculation. I got a hunch that there's going to be people who are going to be experiencing these judgments, and they're going to say, "Give me that book. What's in there?" Are you kidding me? Because they're coming to Christ in droves. They're coming to Christ in droves during this period. Multitudes, John says. So that we know that these creatures are, are they come ready for battle. They are demonic forces, things that we have a difficult time understanding because we live in the present, don't we? And we live in the physical. And even though there's a spiritual battle that's going on around us, I don't see a demon anywhere in my eyesight. I wouldn't want to. Okay? Yeah, you don't want to. And that's not a, you know, we can make fun of that, but that's serious business. And yet at this time, these are demonic forces. Multitudes of them. And that's only one woe that's passed. And to finish this up, the sixth trumpet judgment, which is the second row, says that the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are, who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Don't forget that 25% of mankind was already killed in one of the sealed judgments. Now a third is going to be killed. That means that, by my math, that over 50% are now dead. So a billion and a half left in the rapture and now 50%. That means maybe, I don't know, two to three billion more people are now dead on the planet. 
Now the number in the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in this vision. And then he goes to talk about how many um, uh, of these horses uh, and the riders whose breastplates were very colorful and that their heads were like lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. And I think that there is more imagery here that's going on because the 200 million more than likely are not people because otherwise God's word wouldn't say that they had fire coming out of their mouths. Now, could God make fire come out of your mouth or mine? Sure. But this is imagery that is suggestive of the fact that 200 million, we just saw in the other judgment that they are going to come out of the abyss. And these 200 million that are, that are going to be 200 million strong are more than likely demonic forces that are real. Don't get me wrong, but they're probably not men because at this time men are fighting against men. Remember, there is total chaos and it is about survival of the fittest at this point. And so these are symbolic and are images of demonic forces that are going to come out and spew this sulfur. And that, again, these plagues are, are uh, come forth and a third of mankind is filled. And look at verse 20, if you're there. It says, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues do not repent. Even after the second woe, they don't repent. See, early on we said we were going to see the nature of man. The nature of man is clearly revealed here, isn't it? Doesn't man just want to be God? After all of this going on, man's nature is such that it says that they didn't repent. They didn't repent of their murders or of their sorceries or of their sexual immorality or of their thefts. Just murderers. They're just the common, everyday kind of folks that we see here. And they're going to continue to do what they do. And they're going to all this chaos and they're going to continue to take advantage of all the, of all the weakness that it exists out there. And there will be people, trust me, there will be people profiting uh, when, they're wanting, when you need fresh water. It's like looters today. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Because man's nature is man's nature is man's nature. And all God is doing here is revealing it for what it is. And he's revealing who he is. He's revealing who we are. And then, of course, ultimately, we're going to see, starting next week, he's going to reveal who Satan really is. And that's the message. The seventh judgment, and then we'll leave, quickly, is nothing more than the kingdom being proclaimed. There's actually good news that comes in the seventh trumpet judgment that is the third woe. It says the, the, second, the first and second woe have passed, but guess what? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, it says in Revelation 11, 14, and 15. But before that that can happen, there are the bold judgments. And then the Antichrist has been very, very busy during this period. And next week we'll pick up and we're going to look specifically at what the Antichrist is up to. In terms of everything from uh, this one world government that we hear about. Where does that come from? The Bible. 
Okay, and one world religion, where does that come from? Scripture. And one world military, where does that come from? Scripture. Yeah, the mark of the beast and the um, uh, Satan being cast out of heaven. These are significant events that happen during the second half of the tribulation because even though it has been woed that, that Christ is going to ultimately reign, That's what happens at the end of the tribulation. And yet there are many events that have to take place between now and then, culminating with this misconceived idea that most Christians have about Armageddon. Because most people believe that Armageddon is the is is like World War Three or Four or whatever it might be. Okay? And it's not. And so we are going to take a look at these events for the last couple of years of the tribulation, what Antichrist is doing and how that brings on Armageddon before the second coming of Christ, where the news becomes very good. In fact, very, very good. <coughs> Amen.